0: Part six of the Status Civilization by Robert Sheckley This Librivox recording is in the public domain. Reading by Greg Marguerite. Part six of the Status Civilization by Robert Scheckley CHAPTER twenty seven. Early the next morning Barrent began his exploration. His technique was simple. He rang doorbells and asked questions. He warned all his subjects that his real questions might be interspersed with tricks or nonsense questions, whose purpose was to test the general awareness level. In that way, Barrent found he could ask anything at all about Earth, could explore controversial or even non-existent areas, and do so without revealing his own ignorance. There was still the danger that some official would ask for his credentials, or that the police would mysteriously spring up when least expected. But he had to take those risks. Starting at the beginning of Orange Esplanade, Barrent worked his way northward, calling at each house as he went. His results were uneven, as a selective sampling of his work shows. Citizen A. L. Godthred, age fifty-five, occupation home tender. A strong, erect woman, imperious but polite, with a no-nonsense air about her. You want to ask me about class and status, is that it? Yes, ma'am. You opinioners are always asking about class and status. One would think you'd know all about it by now. But very well. Today, since everyone is equal, there is only one class—the middle class. The only question, then, is to what portion of the middle class does one belong? high, low, or middle. And how is that determined?" "'Why, by all sorts of things. The way a person speaks, eats, dresses, the the way he acts in public. His manners, his clothing. You can always tell your upper-middle-class man by his clothes. It's quite unmistakable.' "'I see. And the lower-middle classes?' "'Well, for one thing, they lack creative energy.' They wear ready-made clothing, for example, without taking the trouble to improve upon it. The same goes for their homes. Mere uninspired adornment won't do. Let me add, that's simply the mark of the nouveau upper-middle class. One doesn't receive such persons in the home." Thank you, Citizen Gottfried. And where would you classify yourself, status-wise? With the very faintest hesitation, Oh, I've never thought much about it upper-middle-class, I suppose. Citizen Droyster, age forty-three. Occupation, shoe-vendor. A slender, mild man, young-looking for his years. Yes, sir. Myra and I have three children, of school age. All boys. Could you give me some idea what their education consists of? They learn how to read and write and how to become good citizens. They're already starting to learn their trades. The oldest is going to the family business, shoes. The other two are taking apprenticeship courses in groceries and retail marketing. That's my wife's side of the business. They also learn how to retain status and how to utilize standard techniques for moving upward. That's about what goes on in the open classes. Are there other school classes which are not open? Well, naturally, there are the closed classes. Every child attends them. And what do they learn in the closed classes? I don't know. They're closed, as I said. Don't the children ever speak about those classes? No. They talk about everything under the sun, but not about that. Haven't you any idea what goes on in the closed classes? Sorry, I I don't at a guess. And it's only a guess, mind you. I- I'd say it's probably something religious. But you'd have to ask a teacher for that." "'Thank you, sir. And how do you classify yourself, status-wise?' "'Middle-middle class. Not much doubt about that.'" Citizen Mary Jane Morgan, age fifty-one. Occupation, school teacher. A tall, bony woman. Yes, sir. I, I think that just about sums up our curriculum at the little beige schoolhouse. Except for the closed classes. I beg your pardon, sir? The closed classes. You haven't discussed those. I'm afraid I can't. Why not, Citizen Morgan? Is this a trick question? Everyone knows that teachers aren't allowed in the closed classes. Who is allowed in? The children, of course. But who teaches them? The government is in charge of that. Of course. But who specifically does the teaching in the closed classes? I have no idea, sir. It's none of my business. The closed classes are an ancient and respected institution. What goes on in them is quite possibly of a religious nature. But that's only a guess whatever it is it's none of my business nor is it yours young man opinioner or not thank you citizen morgan citizen edgar neef age one hundred and seven occupation retired officer a tall stooped man with cane icy blue eyes undimmed by age a little louder please what was that question again about the armed forces specifically i asked i remember now yes young man i was a colonel in the twenty first north american spaceborne commando which was a regular unit of the earth defense corps and did you retire from the service no the service retired from me i beg pardon sir You heard me correctly, young man. It happened just sixty-three years ago. The Earth Armed Forces were demobilized, except for the police, whom I cannot count. But all regular units were demobilized." Why was that done, sir? There wasn't anyone to fight, wasn't even anyone to guard against, or so I was told. Damned foolish business, I say. Why, sir? Because an old soldier knows that you can never tell when an enemy might spring up. It could happen now. And then where would we be? Couldn't the armies be formed again? Certainly. But the present generation has no concept of serving under arms. There are no leaders left outside of a few useless old fools like me. It would take years for an effective force, effectively led, to be formed. And in the meantime, Earth is completely open to invasion from the outside? Yes, except for the police units, and I seriously doubt their reliability under fire. Could you tell me about the police? There's nothing I know about them. I have never bothered my head about non-military matters. But it's conceivable that the police have now taken over the functions of the army, isn't it? That the police constitute a sizable and disciplined paramilitary force. It is possible, sir. Anything is possible. Citizen Morton Honors. Age thirty-one. Occupation. Verbalizer. A slim languid man with an earnest boyish face and smooth corn-blonde hair. Are you a verbalizer, Citizen Honors? I am, sir. Though perhaps author would be a better word, if you don't mind. Of course, Citizen Honors. Are you presently engaged in writing for any of the periodicals I see on the dissemination stands? Certainly not. Those are written by incompetent hacks for the dubious delectation of the lower middle class. The stories, in case you didn't know, are taken line by line from the works of various popular writers of the twentieth and twenty-first centuries. The people who do the work merely substitute adjectives and adverbs. Occasionally, I'm told, a more daring hack will substitute a verb or even a noun. But that is rare. The editors of such periodicals frown upon sweeping innovations. And you are not engaged in such work? Absolutely not. My work is non-commercial. I am a creative Conrad specialist. Would you mind telling me what that means, Citizen Honors? I'd be happy to. My own particular field of endeavor lies in recreating the works of Joseph Conrad, an author who lived in the pre-atomic era. How do you go about recreating those works, sir? Well, at present I'm engaged in my fifth recreation of Lord Jim. To do it I steep myself as thoroughly as possible in the original work. Then I set about rewriting it as Conrad would have written if he had lived today. It is a labor which calls for extreme diligence and for the utmost in artistic integrity. A single slip could mar the recreation. As you can see, it calls for a preliminary mastery of Conrad's vocabulary, themes, plots, characters, mood, approach, and so on. All this goes in, and yet the book cannot be a slavish repeat. It must have something new to say, just as Conrad would have said it. And you have succeeded? The critics have been generous, and my publisher gives me every encouragement. When you have finished your fifth recreation of Lord Jim, what do you plan to do? First, I shall take a long rest. Then I shall recreate one of Conrad's minor works. The Planter of Mulata, perhaps. I see. Is recreation the rule in all arts? It is the goal of the true aspiring artist, no matter what medium he has chosen to work in. Art is a cruel mistress, I fear. Citizen Willis O'Erka. Age eight. Occupation. Student. A cheerful, black-haired, suntanned boy. I'm sorry, Mr. Opinioner. My parents aren't home right now. That's perfectly all right, Willis. Do you mind if I ask you a question or two? I don't mind. What's that you got under your jacket, mister? It It bulges. I'll ask the questions, Willis, if you don't mind. Now, do you like school? It's all right. What courses do you take?" Well, there's reading and writing and status appreciation and courses in art, music, architecture, literature, ballet and theater. The usual stuff. I see. That's in the open classes. Sure. Do you also attend a closed class? Sure, I do. Every day. Do you mind talking about it? I don't mind. Is that Bulge a gun? I know what guns are. Some of the big boys were passing around pictures at lunchtime a couple of days ago, and I peeked. Is it a gun?" No. My my suit doesn't fit very well, that's all. Now then, would you mind telling me what you do in the closed class?" I don't mind. What happens then? I don't remember. Come now, Willis really, Mr. Opinioner, we all go into this classroom and we come out two hours later for recess, but that's all. I can't remember anything else. I've talked with the other kids. They can't remember either. Strange. No, sir. If we were supposed to remember, it wouldn't be closed. Perhaps so. Do you remember what the room looks like, or who your teacher is for the closed class? No, sir. I really don't remember anything at all about it. Thank you, Willis. Citizen Cuchulain Dent. Age thirty-seven. Occupation. Inventor. A prematurely bald man with ironic, heavy-lidded eyes. Yep, that's right. I'm an inventor specializing in games. I brought out Triangulate or else last year. It's been pretty popular. Have you seen it? I'm afraid not. Sort of a cute game. It's a simulated lost-in-space thing. The players are given incomplete data for their miniature computers, additional information as they win it. Space hazards for penalties. Lots of flashing lights and stuff like that. Very big seller. Do you invent anything else, Citizen Dent? When I was a kid, I worked up an improved seed harvester. Designed to be approximately three times as efficient as the present models. And would you believe it? I really thought I had a chance of selling it. Did you sell it? Of course not. At that time I didn't realize that the patent office was closed permanently except for the games section. Were you angry about that? A little angry at the time, but I soon realized that the models we have are plenty good enough. There's no need for more efficient or more ingenious inventions. Uh, Folks today are satisfied with what they've got. Besides, new inventions would be of no service to mankind. Earth's birth and death rates are stable, and there's enough for everyone. To produce a new invention, you'd have to retool an entire factory. That would be almost impossible, since all the factories today are automatic and self-repairing. That's why there's a moratorium on invention, except in the novelty game field. How do you feel about that? What's there to feel? That's how things are would you like to have things different? Maybe. But being an inventor I'm classified as a potentially unstable character, anyhow." Citizen Barn Threnton, age forty-one. Occupation, Atomics Engineer, specializing in spacecraft design. A nervous, intelligent-looking man with sad brown eyes. You want to know what I do in my job? I'm sorry you asked that, Citizen, because I don't do a thing except walk around the factory. Union rules require one standby human for every robot or robotized operation. That's what I do. I just stand by." You sound dissatisfied, Citizen Threnton. I am. I wanted to be an atomics engineer. I trained for it. Then, when I graduated, I found out my knowledge was fifty years out of date. Even if I learned what was going on now, I'd have no place to use it. Why not? Because everything in atomics is automatized. I don't know if the majority of the population knows that, but it's true. From raw material to finished product, it's all completely automatic. The only human participation in the program is quantity control in terms of population indexes, and even that is minimal what happens if a part of an automatic factory breaks down? It gets fixed by robot repair units. And if they break down? The damned things are self-repairing. All I can do is stand by and watch and fill out a report, which is a ridiculous position for a man who considers himself an engineer. Why don't you turn to some other field? No use. I've checked, and the rest of the engineers are in the same position I'm in, watching automatic processes which they don't understand. Name your field. Food processing, automobile manufacture, construction, biochem, it's all the same. Either standby engineers, or no engineers at all." Is this true for spaceflight, also? Sure. No member of the Space Pilots' Union has been off Earth for close to fifty years. They, They wouldn't know how to operate a ship. I see. All the ships are set for automatic. Exactly. Permanently and irrevocably automatic. What would happen if these ships ran into an unprecedented situation? That's hard to say. The ships can't think, you know. They simply follow preset programs. If the ships ran into a situation for which they were not programmed, they'd be paralyzed, at least temporarily. I think they have an optimum choice selector, which is supposed to take over unstructured situations, but it's never been tried out. At best, it would react sluggishly. At worst, it wouldn't work at all. And that would be fine by me. Do you really mean that? I certainly do. I'm sick of standing around watching a machine do the same thing day after day. Most of the professional men I know feel the same way. We want to do something. Anything. Did you know that a hundred years ago human-piloted starships were exploring the planets of other solar systems?" Yes. Well, that's what we should be doing now. Moving outward, exploring, advancing. That's what we need. I agree. But don't you think you're saying rather dangerous things? I know I am. But frankly, I just don't care any longer. Let them ship me to Omega if they want to. I'm doing no good here. Then you've heard about Omega. Anyone connected with starships knows about Omega. Round trips between Omega and Earth, that's all our ships do. It's a terrible world. Personally, I put the blame on the clergy. The clergy? Absolutely. Those sanctimonious fools, with their endless drivel about the Church of the Spirit of Mankind incarnate. It's it's enough to make a man wish for a little evil. Citizen Father Boeren, age fifty-one. Occupation, clergyman. A stately, plum-shaped man wearing a saffron robe and white sandals. That's right, my son. I am the abbot of the local branch of the Church of the Spirit of Mankind Incarnate. Our church is the official and exclusive religious expression of the government of Earth. Our religion speaks for all the peoples of Earth it is a composite of the best elements of all the former religions both major and minor skillfully blended into a single all-embracing faith citizen Abbott, aren't there bound to be contradictions in doctrine among the various religions which make up your faith there were but the forgers of our present church threw out all controversial matter we wanted agreement not dissension We preserve only certain colorful facets of those early great religions, facets with which people can identify. There have never been any schisms in our religion, because we are all acceptant. One may believe anything one wishes as long as it preserves the Holy Spirit of mankind incarnate. For our worship, you see, is the true worship of man, and the Spirit we recognize is the Spirit of the Divine and the Holy Good. Would you define good for me, Citizen Abbott? Certainly. Good is that force within us which inspires men to acts of conformity and subservience. The worship of good is essentially the worship of oneself, self, and therefore the only true worship. The self which one worships is the ideal social being, the man content in his niche in society, yet ready to creatively advance his status good is gentle, since it is a true reflection of the loving and pitying universe. Good is continually changing in its aspects, although it comes to us in the—you have a strange look on your face, young man. I'm I'm sorry, Citizen Abbott. I believe I heard that sermon, or one very much like it. It is true wherever one hears it. Uh, Of course. One more question, sir. Could you tell me about the religious instruction of children?" "'That duty is performed for us by the robot confessors.' "'Yes.' "'The notion came to us from the ancient root faith of transcendental Freudianism. The robot confessor instructs children and adults alike. It hears their problems within the social matrix. It is their constant friend, their social mentor, their religious instructor. Being robotic, the confessors are able to give exact and unvarying answers to any question. This aids the great work of conformity. I can see that it does. What do the human priests do? They watch over the robot confessors. Are these robot confessors present in the closed classrooms? I am not competent to answer that. They are, aren't they? I truly do not know. The closed classrooms are closed to abbots as well as other adults. By whose order? By order of the chief of the secret police. I see. Thank you, citizen abbot Borin. Citizen Enyan Dravivian, age forty-three, occupation, government employee. A narrow-faced, slit-eyed man, old and tired beyond his years. Good afternoon, sir. You you say that you are employed by the government? Correct. Is that the state or federal government? Both. I see. And have you been in this employ for very long? Approximately eighteen years. Yes, sir. Would you mind telling me what, specifically, your job is? Not at all. I am the chief of the secret police. You are? I see, sir. That's that's very interesting. I— Don't reach for your needlebeam, ex-citizen Barrent. I can assure you it won't operate in the blanketed area around this house. And if you draw it, you'll be hurt." How— I have my own means of protection. How did you know my name? I've known about you almost since you set foot upon Earth. We are not entirely without resources, you know. But we can discuss all that inside. Won't you come in? I— think I'd rather nod. I'm afraid you have to. Come, Barrent. I won't bite you. Am I under arrest? Of course not. We're simply going to have a little talk. That's right, sir. Right through there. Just make yourself comfortable. Chapter Twenty-Eight Dravivian led him into a large room paneled in walnut. The furniture was of a heavy black wood, intricately carved and varnished. The desk, high and straight, seemed to be an antique. A heavy tapestry covered one entire wall. It depicted in fading colors a medieval hunting scene. Do you like it? Dravivian asked. My family did the furnishing. My wife copied the tapestry from an original in the Metropolitan Museum. My two sons collaborated on the furniture. They wanted something ancient and Spanish in feeling, but with more comfort than antiques usually give. A slight modification of the lines accomplished that. My own contributions are not visible. Music of the Baroque period is my specialty." "'Aside from police work,' Barrent said. "'Yes, aside from that,' Trevivian turned away from Barrent and looked thoughtfully at the tapestry. "'We will come to the matter of the police in due course. Tell me first, what do you think of this room?' "'It's very beautiful,' Barrent said. Yes, and—' Well, I'm no judge. You must judge, Dravivian said. In this room you can see Earth's civilization in miniature. Tell me, what do you think of it? It feels lifeless, Barrent said. Dravivian turned to Barrent and smiled. Yes, that's a good word for it. A self-involved might perhaps be better. This is a high-status room, Barrent. A great deal of creativity has gone into the artistic improvement of ancient archetypes. My family has recreated a bit of the Spanish past, as others have recreated bits of the Mayan, early American, or Oceanic past. And yet the essential hollowness is obvious. Our automatized factories produce the same goods for us year in and year out. Since everyone has these same goods, it is necessary for us to change the factory product, to improve and embroider it, to express ourselves through it, to rank ourselves by it. That's how Earth is, Barrent. Our energy and skills are channeled into essentially decadent pursuits. We re-carve old furniture, worry about rank and status, and in the meantime the frontier of the distant planets remains unexplored and unconquered we ceased long ago to expand. Stability brought the danger of stagnation, to which we succumbed. We became so highly socialized that individuality had to be diverted to the most harmless of pursuits, turned inward, kept from any meaningful expression. I think you have seen a fair amount of that in your time on Earth." I have, but I never expected to hear the chief of the secret police say it. I'm an unusual man. Dravivian said, with a mocking smile. And the secret police is an unusual institution. It must be very efficient. How did you find out about me? That was really quite simple. Most of the people of Earth are security-conditioned from childhood. It's part of our heritage, you know. Nearly all the people you met were able to tell that there was something very wrong about you. You were as obviously out of place as a wolf among sheep. People noticed and reported directly to me. All right, Barrent said. Now what? First, I would like you to tell me about Omega. Barrent told the police chief about his life on the prison planet. Dravivian nodded, a faint smile on his lips. Yes, it's very much as I expected, he said. The same sort of thing has happened on Omega as happened in early America and Australia. There are differences, of course. You have been shut off more completely from the mother country. But the same fierce energy and drive is there, and the same ruthlessness." What are you going to do? Barrent asked. Dravivian shrugged his shoulders. It really doesn't matter, I suppose. I could kill you. But that wouldn't stop your group on Omega from sending out other spies or from seizing one of the prison ships. As soon as the Omegans begin to move in force, they'll discover the truth anyhow. What truth? By now, it must be obvious to you, Dravivian said. Earth hasn't fought a war in nearly eight hundred years. We wouldn't know how. The organization of guard-ships around Omega is pure façade. The ships are completely automatized, built to meet conditions of several hundreds years ago. A determined attack will capture a ship, and when you have one, the rest will fall. After that, there's nothing to stop the Omegans from coming back to Earth, and there's nothing on Earth to fight them with. This, you must realize, is the reason why all prisoners leaving Earth are divorced from their memories. If they remembered, Earth's vulnerabilities would be painfully apparent. If you knew all this, Barrent asked, why didn't your leaders do something about it? That was our original intention, but there was no real drive behind the intention. We preferred not to think about it. We assumed the status quo would remain indefinitely. We didn't want to think about the day when the Omegans returned to Earth." "'What are you and your police going to do about it?' Barrent asked. "'I am a façade, too,' Dravivian told him. "'I have no police. The position of chief is entirely honorary. There has been no need for a police force on Earth for close to a century.' "'You're going to need one when the Omegans come home,' Barrent said. Yes, there's going to be crime again, and serious trouble, but I think the final amalgamation will be successful. You on Omega have the drive the ambition to reach the stars. I believe you will need a certain stability and creativeness which Earth can provide, whatever the results. The union is inevitable. We've lived in a dream here for too long. It's going to take violent measures to awaken us. Dravivian rose to his feet, and now he said. Since the fate of Earth and Omega seemed to be decided, could I offer you some refreshment?" Chapter 29 With the help of the Chief of Police, Barrent put a message aboard the next ship to leave for Omega. The message told about conditions on Earth and urged immediate action. When that was finished, Barrent was ready for his final job to find the judge who had sentenced him for a crime he hadn't committed, and the lying informer who had turned him in to the judge. When he found those two, Barrent knew he would regain the missing portions of his memory. He took the night expressway to Youngerston. His suspicions, sharply keyed from life on Omega, would not let him rest. There had been a catch to all this splendid simplicity. Perhaps he would find it in Youngerston. By early morning he was there. Superficially the neat rows of houses looked the same as in any other town, but for Brent they were different and achingly familiar. He remembered this town, and the monotonous houses had individuality and meaning for him. He had been born and raised in this town. There was Grothmeyer's store, and across the street was the home of Havening, the local interior decorating champion. Here was Billy Havlock's house. Billy had been his best friend. They had planned on being star men together and had remained good friends after school. Until Barrent had been sentenced to Omega. Here was Andrew Thurcaller's house, and down the block was the school he had attended. He could remember the classes. He could remember how every day they had gone through the door that led to the closed class, but he still could not remember what he had learned there. Right here, near two huge elms, the murder had taken place. Barrent walked to the spot and remembered how it had happened. He had been on his way home. From somewhere down the street, he had heard a scream. He had turned and a man, Illardy, had run down the street and thrown something at him. Barrent had caught it instinctively and found himself holding an illegal handgun. A few steps further, he had looked into the twisted, dead face of Andrew Thurcaller. And what had happened next? Confusion. Panic. A sensation of someone watching as he stood, weapon in hand, over the corpse. There, at the end of the street, was the refuge to which he had gone. He walked up to it and recognized it as a robot confessional booth. Barrent entered the booth. It was small and there was a faint odor of incense in the air. The room contained a single chair. Facing it was a complex, brilliantly lighted panel. Good morning, Will," the panel said to him. Barrent had a sudden sense of helplessness when he heard that soft, mechanical voice. He remembered it now. The passionless voice knew all, understood all, and forgave nothing. That artfully manufactured voice had spoken to him, had listened, and then had judged. In his dream he had personified the robot confessor into the figure of a human judge. You remember me? Barrent asked. Of course, said the robot confessor. You were one of my parishioners before you went to Omega. You sent me there for the crime of murder. But I didn't commit the crime, Barrent said. I didn't do it. And you must have known it. Of course I knew it, the robot confessor said. But my powers and duties are strictly defined. I sentence according to evidence, not intuition. By law, the robot confessors must weigh only the concrete evidence which is put before them. They must, when in doubt, sentence. In fact, the mere presence of a man before me charged with murder must be taken as a strong presumption of his guilt. Was there evidence against me? Yes. Who gave it? I cannot reveal his name. You must, Barrent said. Times are changing on earth. The prisoners are coming back. Did you know that? I expected it," the robot confessor said. I must have the informer's name, Barrent said. He took the needlebeam out of his pocket and advanced toward the panel. A machine cannot be coerced, the robot confessor told him. Give me the name, Barrent shouted. I should not, for your own good. The danger would be too great. Believe me, Will—the name. Very well. You will find the informer at 35 Maple Street. But I earnestly advise you not to go there. You will be killed. You simply do not know— Barrent pressed the trigger, and the narrow beam scythed through the panel. Lights flashed and faded as he cut through the intricate wiring. At last all the lights were dead, and a faint gray smoke came from the panel. Barrent left the booth. He put the needle beam back in his pocket and walked to Maple Street. He had been here before. He knew this street set upon a hill, rising steeply between oak and maple trees. Those lampposts were old friends. That crack in the pavement was an ancient landmark. Here were the houses, heavy with familiarity. They seemed to lean expectantly toward him like spectators waiting for the final act of an almost forgotten drama. He stood in front of thirty-five Maple Street. The silence which surrounded that plain, white shuttered house struck him as ominous. He took the needlebeam out of his pocket, looking for reassurance he knew he could not find. Then he walked up the neat flagstones and tried the front door. It opened. He stepped inside. He made out the dim shades of lamps and furniture, the dull gleam of a painting on the wall, a piece of statuary on ebony pedestal. Needlebeam in hand, he stepped into the room and came face to face with the informer. Staring at the informer's face, Barrent remembered, in an overpowering flood of memory, he saw himself a little boy entering the closed classroom. He heard again the soothing hum of machinery, watched the pretty lights blink and flash, heard the insinuating machine voice whisper in his ear. At first the voice filled him with horror. What it suggested was unthinkable. Then, slowly, he became accustomed to it and accustomed to all the strange things that happened in the closed classroom. He learned. The machines taught on deep, unconscious levels. The machines intertwined their lessons with the basic drives, weaving a pattern of learned behavior with the life instinct. They taught, then blocked off conscious knowledge of the lessons, sealed it, and fused it. What had he been taught? For the social good, you must be your own policeman and witness. You you must assume responsibility for any crime which might conceivably be yours." The face of the informer stared impassively at him. It was Barrent's own face, reflected back from a mirror on the wall. He had informed on himself. Standing with the gun in his hand that day, looking down at the murdered man, learned unconscious processes had taken over. The presumption of guilt had been too great for him to resist. The similarity to guilt had turned into guilt itself. He had walked to the robot confessor's booth, and there he had given complete and damning evidence against himself. He had indicted himself on the basis of probability. The robot confessor had passed the obligatory sentence, and Barrent had left the booth well trained in the lessons of the classroom, he had taken himself into custody, had gone to the nearest Thought Control Center in Trenton. Already a partial amnesia had taken place, keyed to and triggered by the lessons of the closed classroom. The skilled Android technicians in the Thought Control Center had labored hard to complete this amnesia, to obliterate any remnants of memory. As a standard safeguard against any possible recovering of his memory, they had implanted a logical construct of his crime beneath the conscious level. As the regulations required, this construct contained an implication of the far-reaching power of Earth. When the job was completed, an automatized barrent had marched out of the center, taken a special expressway to the prison-ship depot, boarded the prison-ship, entered his cell, and closed the door and left Earth behind him then he had slept until the checkpoint had been passed after which the newly arrived guards awakened the prisoners for disembarkation on omega now staring at his own face in the mirror the last of the conscious lessons of the classroom became conscious the lessons of the closed classroom must never be consciously known by the individual if they become conscious the human organism must perform an immediate act of self-destruction Now he saw why his conquest of Earth had been so easy. It was because he had conquered nothing. Earth needed no security forces, for the policeman and the executioner were implanted in every man's mind. Beneath the surface of Earth's mild and pleasant culture was a self-perpetuating robot civilization. An awareness of that civilization was punishable by death. And here, at this moment, the real struggle for Earth began. Learned behavior patterns intertwined with basic life drives forced Barrent to raise the needle beam to point it towards his head. This was what the robot confessor had tried to warn him about, and what the mutant girl had screnned. The younger Barrent, conditioned to absolute and mindless conformity, had to kill himself. The older Barrent, who had spent time on Omega, fought that blind urge. A schizophrenic Barrent fought himself. The two parts of him battled for possession of the weapon, for control of the body, for ownership of the mind. The needlebeam's movement stopped inches from his head. The muzzle wavered. Then slowly the new Omegan Barrent, Barrent II, forced the weapon away. His victory was short-lived, for now the lessons of the closed classroom took over, forcing Barrent II into a contra-survival struggle with the implacable and death-desiring Barrent CHAPTER THIRTY Conditioning took over and flung the fighting Barents backward through subjective time, to those stress points in the past where death had been near, where the temporal life fabric had been weakened, where a predisposition toward death had already been established. Conditioning forced Barrent, too, to re-experience those moments, but this time the danger was augmented by the full force of the malignant half of his personality, by the murderous informer, Barrent One. Barrent II stood under glaring lights on the blood-stained sands of the arena, a sword in his hand. It was the time of the Omegan Games. Coming at him was the Saunus, a heavily armored reptile with the leering face of Barrent I. Barrent II severed the creature's tail, and it changed into three rat rat-sized, Barrent-faced, with the dispositions of rabid wolverines. He killed two, and the third grinned and bit his left hand to the bone. He killed it and watched Barrent One's blood leak into the soggy sand. Three ragged men sat laughing on a bench, and a girl handed him a small gun. "'Luck,' she said, "'I hope you know how to use this.' Barrent nodded his thanks before he noticed that the girl was not Moira. She was the screnning mutant who had predicted his death. Still he moved into the street and faced the three Hadjis. Two of the men were mild-faced strangers. The third. Barrent one stepped forward and quickly brought his gun into firing position. Barrent two flung himself to the ground and pressed the trigger of his unfamiliar weapon. He felt it vibrate in his hand and saw Haji Barrent's head and shoulders turn black and begin to crumble. Before he could take aim again, his gun was wrenched violently from his hand. Barrent one's dying shot had creased the end of the muzzle. Desperately he dived for the weapon and as he rolled toward it he saw the second man, now wearing the Berent one face, take careful aim. Berent II felt pain flash through his arm, already torn by the trichometred's teeth. He managed to shoot this Berent one and through a haze of pain faced the third man, now also Berent One. His arm was stiffening rapidly, but he forced himself to press the trigger. You're playing their game, Barent Two told himself. The death conditioning will wear you down, will kill you. You must see through it. Get past it. It isn't really happening. It's in your mind." But there was no time to think. He was in a large, circular, high-ceilinged room of stone in the cellars of the Department of Justice. It was the trial by ordeal. Rolling across the floor toward him was a glistening black machine shaped like a half-sphere, standing almost four feet high. It came at him, and in the pattern of red, green, and amber lights he could see the hated face of Barrent One. Now his enemy was in its ultimate form, the invariant robot consciousness, as false and stylized as the conditioned dreams of Earth. The Barrent One machine extruded a single slender tentacle with a white light winking at the end of it. As it approached, the tentacle withdrew, and in its place appeared a jointed metal arm ending in a knife edge. Barrent Two dodged and heard the knife scrape against the stone. It isn't what you think it is. Barrent, too, told himself. It isn't a machine, and you're not back on Omega. This is only half of yourself you are fighting. This is nothing but a deadly illusion. But he couldn't believe it. The Barrent machine was coming at him again, its metal hide glistening with a foul green substance which Barrent, too, recognized immediately as contact poison. He broke into a sprint, trying to stay away from the fatal touch. It isn't fatal, he told himself. Neutralizer washed over the metal surface, clearing away the poison. The machine tried to ram him. Barrent tried half-heartedly to push it aside. It crashed into him with stunning force and he could feel ribs splintering. It isn't real. You're letting a conditioned reflex talk you to death. You aren't on Omega. You're on Earth, in your own home, staring into a mirror. But the pain was real. And the clubbed metal arm felt real as it crashed against his shoulder. Barrent staggered away. He felt horror. Not at dying, but at dying too soon, before he could warn the Omegans of this ultimate danger planted deep in their own minds. There was no one else to warn of the catastrophe that would strike each man as he recovered his own specific memories of Earth. To his best knowledge, no one had experienced this and lived. If he could live through it, countermeasures could be taken, counter-conditioning could be set up. He pulled himself to his feet coached since childhood in social responsibility, he thought of it now. He couldn't allow himself to die when his knowledge was vital to Omega. This is not a real machine. He repeated it to himself as the Berent machine revved up, picked up speed, and hurtled toward him from the far side of the room. He forced himself to see beyond the machine, to see the patient, droning lessons of the classroom which had created this monster in his mind. This is not a real machine. He believed it, and swung his fist into the hated face reflected in the metal. There was a moment of dazzling pain, and then he lost consciousness. When he came to, he was alone in his own home on earth. His arm and shoulder ached, and several of his ribs seemed to be broken. On his left hand he bore the stigmata of the trichomatret's bite. But with his cut and bleeding right hand, he had smashed the mirror. He had shattered it and Barent won utterly and forever. End of part six of the Status Civilization. End of the Status Civilization by Robert Sheckley.